Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, mate, when you're ready, let's, uh, let's yeah, get underway. Yeah, let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Mark Simpson. He's the author of Excellent Investing, How to Build a Winning Portfolio and the Manager of Danger Capital. It's a great name. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Toby. Great to be here. Uh, I'm good, thanks. Danger Capital, great name. Uh, how did you come up with that? Yeah, well, let me just be clear. I, I don't out, I don't run outside capital. I own, I only run my own portfolio. The the danger capital is um, a, a sort of tongue in cheek name, um, mainly because it would it would generally be a terrible name for a hedge fund. <laughs> um, it's um, most you know most funds like to call themselves things like um, Lion Rock, you know, so that they're you know that they're, they're solid. They're never yeah. taking a risk with your money, whereas. You know, certainly in my world, it's the it's the judicious taking of that risk and the, um, you know, the being exposed to the right risks that generate um, returns. Um, uh, uh, you know, so the yeah, the, the the Twitter handle Danger Capital is a bit of a, a, a play on that uh, uh, on that. So what what inspired you to write the book? I I, um, I I saw the excellent investing. I was a little bit wary when I saw the title because I like to read value investing books, but it's very clearly it's a value book, and you're a deep value guy. So what what inspired you to write the book? Yeah, I've I've tried to write the book. Um, although I I myself am a deep value investor, I've tried to write the book from a perspective of things that are applicable to lots of different types of investors. Hopefully that. Uh, that comes through and uh, um, it's it's not all deep value but I, I guess it's very hard to remove yourself from the lens your lens of the world right um the the book itself is um I, I i read a lot of you know obviously widely around investing and there's a lot of books that are how to choose your next great stock um and there's very few books that tell you how to build that into a coherent portfolio and the process of, um, you know, building a portfolio, weighting the stocks in that portfolio, avoiding investment mistakes, um, you know, in my opinion, are, are almost equally important as, you know, being able to be a stock picker. Um, and I felt that, um, yes, so a lot of investors were sort of under-resourced in this area. Um, and the books that were out there were quite academic. So, sure. um, you know, they either they either were very detailed and, and and good but very hard to apply or had no practical aspects for implementation um or they sort of pushed you towards um passive investing and for a lot of people i think sort of passive investing is a, is a great thing if you don't have the time or the inclination but sort of saying to stock pickers where well, you should give up and um you know go into passive investing 
Um, the, the analogy I use, it's a little bit like one of your friends asking for relationship advice to in, you know, improve their romantic relationship. And you say, oh, just just break up. You know, it's, you're terrible anyway. <laughs> just break up. <laughs> um, and it, it's just not the sort of advice that people want. Or, there might or be some incremental listen. advice before that before that end stage. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there should be something. And hopefully the book is that it is that um practical guide for people to build better portfolios and particularly to avoid sort of common investment mistakes that people make i like the way the book is laid out you've got you begin with strengths uh and then you you move into weaknesses and then how to build an optimal portfolio so let's go through that the first thing is talking about competitive advantages and you don't mean that just in terms of finding competitive advantages in the companies that you're looking at you mean finding those competitive advantages in yourself so perhaps you'd like to discuss how you go about doing that yeah i think again there's a lot that's written about um competitive advantage uh, finding moats in the market um and um yeah they're very important being able to analyze a, a corporate moat um is um is one of the key parts of you know successful investing but the you know, many people sort of affect, forget to apply that process to themselves or to the managers they choose. So they accept that um, a company without competitive advantage will, um, you know, in the long term only um, uh, earn the its cost of capital. Um, but they forget that, well, actually, you're going to have the same thing. The, the stock market is a competitive market in the same way. Um, and unless you have an edge... Um, you're gonna you know at best if you're a good decision maker match the market performance and at worst you're going to massively underperform um and i think there's um that there's probably two advantages that um or, or probably only two advantages that individual investors like myself can have um they're smaller companies the sort of stuff that your average fund can't invest in due to size and thinking longer term than the market. Um, so, and that doesn't mean investor has to hold for the long term, but they've got to be, they've got to be willing to do that. Um, and I think there's some structural reasons um, to do with, usually to do with bonus incentive and not being fired, why um, fund managers can't truly think long term with their portfolios. Um, and finally, I think there's a an advantage that all investors can have, and that's um, you know this kind of so, so-called special situations. So you look for places where people are selling that are unrelated to the underlying value of the the asset or the business. So spin-offs are the classic example of that. I think you sell individual investors short a little bit sometimes. Uh, everybody does when. Um... You know, if you can value a company and it's just mispriced in the market, whatever the reason is, uh, I, I don't think you'd have to worry too much about why you're the one who found it. You just know that over the course of a, a year, if you find a company trading at say a hundred dollars at the start of the year, over the course of the year, it trade. This is this is pretty common. They trade as low as fifty dollars and as high as one hundred and fifty dollars. And if you think it's worth somewhere between eighty and one hundred and twenty, then you know you can buy it at fifty and maybe sell it at 150 or hold on to whatever the case may be. So I do think that individual investors can um, 
can do this stuff for sure. But there's no question at all that there are going to be some places where that's easier, and it's certainly going to be in small and special situations, as you point out. So you, that's this. That's one of the bits of advice that you give. Think small, and then uh, I. I interpret from that or you discuss shortly after that think about value to why, why focus uh in those two areas beyond sort of um the returns that you can find there yeah well i i guess just the just the historic outperformance that value has shown um as well as kind of small caps i know it's um sort of both are a little bit controversial um that you know the kind of small cap effect has been sort of widely criticized but there's a good paper um from cliff asness called let me it's right um size matters if you control your junk i think you're probably aware <laughs> of it um and and his thing is you do have the size effect as long as you ignore the really really sort of scummy companies the promotes the um the bankrupt the um you know some of the ipos where you know they're they're just the founders cashing in um you know if if you were you know if you just avoid those worst quality companies this size effect comes back in um and it's more pronounced in in value stocks as well so um or maybe the value that's probably the wrong way around the value effect is more pronounced in smaller stocks as well so if you do have the mindset to be a value investor, I think that, um, you know, kind of small is the place to be. Um, you still I, need to be able to analyze a company, but that's the, you know, that's the kind of, you're sort of swimming with the flow rather than against it, in my opinion. It's one of those places, small caps is one of those places where it really does pay to be a stock picker rather than an index hugger uh, for the reasons that you point out. I also think, um, you know, even though value has had a horror run uh, and size has had a horror run to the point that I think now there's a question whether the the size effect actually exists or not, which the contrarian in me says, well, that's probably a good place to be to be hunting right now. Uh, there's a, you, 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 you say that folks should think differently. Uh, what do you mean by that? Um, yeah, so what I kind of said in, in the introduction is that um, the the process of thinking or finding opportunities where somebody else is selling and they don't really care about the price they get. Um, so that's when you're going to find your biggest inefficiencies. Um, you know, kind of Joel Greenblatt's spin-offs are the, the sort of classic one where you get a, um, a small business unit that's spun off from a larger company. And then everybody says, Oh, what's this, small amount of stock I've never heard of in my portfolio. They sort of treat it like a free, you know, like a, a like a, a free bit of money. They're like, oh, hey, I can, you know, uh, well, depending on the size, go out for a meal or go on holiday. I just, you know, I'll sell it. And uh, and it, they view it as a something that they've got for free and therefore doesn't really have any value. Right. Um, uh, other examples, um, I, I think you sometimes see this at year end, um, you know, you get companies that um, nobody wants to hold the loser at the year end. And we got that to tax to effect their... too. Yes, um, within the UK, it's a different. Oh, you got a time. you got a fiscal you year get... end and a tax year end are not the yeah. same, right? Um, yeah, so you get it. Um, uh, so this is a reporting sort of phenomenon. They just don't want to show that they were holding it yeah. over the course of the year, right? Yeah, and if you're 
going to buy something you think is undervalued, you've just got an incentive to wait a couple of weeks and, you know, put it in your portfolio when it's got a full year or a full quarter to sort of recover and show that, you know, um, you're the genius that, that right. picked the recovery stock. Right. So, um, and with liquidity, low liquidity at sort of Christmas time, New Year as well, I think that it, the whole combination of the three, the tax, the liquidity and the reporting um, means you often get price insensitive sellers, um, uh, which you can take advantage of. The spin-offs is interesting because it's everybody read that Greenblatt's yellow book when that came out, whenever that was, but it's been around for 20 years or something like that, maybe longer than that. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, 99, I think. Is it 99? Well, yeah, almost yeah. literally a little bit over 20 years. And then uh, had a great decade for spins and everybody made a lot of money and value guys get to look really smart buying the, the uglier part of the spin and holding that or watching you know, where the managers go as, as, as Joel recommends. But then the last decade's been really rough for spin-offs, so they ha- they just haven't worked very well. So it's I, I don't know whether it's just the book got too popular, or or there's something junky about spins, or I'm not really sure. But what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think there's probably a um, a couple of effects. One is just everybody knows about it, so um, I would certainly expect the the speed that people adapt to this would change. Um, so I think in Greenblatt's book, he said you wait six to nine months before buying in. You know, you're waiting for the um, the smaller investors to get bored, see their brokerage statement and, and kind of sell off. And these days, I mean, most people are sort of checking their portfolios daily or, you know, um, yeah. That would be a lot of restraint. I check it uh, about 100 times a day. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so the I would definitely think the, the effect you're seeing um, is going to be um, is, is going to happen quicker just because information flows. Um, people are used to the idea that you know kind of spin-offs are, are there. I think uh, as well what Greenblatt says is you still have to do the valuation work. You know, whereas maybe in the past spin-offs definitely um, you know you could just buy every single one right. and you know, you get some excess return by doing so. I think, you know, but he never really said that was the way to do it. He said, well, no, you st- if you do good valuation work, this is the place to be. Um, and that's maybe what people forget. Um, and, you know, some of the valuation stuff, you know, of the general market could be considered um, excessive in certain areas. So again, if they're spinning off popular companies, at high multiples, you know, are you really, do you really know better than those managements or better than those teams? Probably not. And uh, you talk about merger up or as I like to call it, risk up because it sounds a lot sexy. You could be danger capital and get get a get a little thing on your card that says that you're a risk arbitrageur. That would be, <laughs> that'd be great to go to the pub and hand those out. Get a lot of, <laughs> that's, that's super sexy. Yeah. So yeah. merger up, what, what, what are your thoughts there? Um, so, I think these these things work, but they're not very good places for your individual investor to um, to be searching in. Um, the same with things like convertible arb or um, a, a capital structure arb. You know, where you, you you buy one structure of share and you short the convertible or the um, the bonds or, or something like that. Um, they're just usually they have the wrong type of 
exposure you're looking for for investors so if you if you win you win small and you lose you lose big you know if that merger doesn't go through um you know you you lose 30 or 40 percent whereas right. if it goes through you make five percent right. um, and hedge funds really like this because it's uncorrelated to um the rest of the market so if you call them right you get this small return um every time and like no correlation um and if you invest in a hundred of them and you have the resources to do your research well right. you'll do quite well out of it and also if you're prepared to use leverage um but for the average investor or individual investor you're going to be not have the time to do the right level of research to gauge whether it's going to go through ahead or not and you're not you know the risk reward just doesn't look like the sort of thing you want as a individual investor which is heads um heads i win several hundred percent and tails i lose five percent <laughs> i i don't i don't mind uh merge arb as a strategy for home gamers i think you should you just need to combine it with a value mindset where if you, you think about what happens if this busts i get i hold whatever i hold i'm short one and long the other or not even worry about the short just just hold the hold the target long but i also like to do it when if the if the uh, the merger gets busted, or there's some problem with it and it trades really wide, and you think the underlying's undervalued, which often they are, so you can buy them, and then you've got well, I've got an undervalued stock, which is probably going to work, and then there's a chance that those returns get pulled forward and the deal goes through, and you get a pretty material pop. That's worked a few times for me where the professionals have picked them over pretty heavily and don't think it's going to work at all, and because I don't know what I'm doing, I'm going to put in you know one or two or three percent. In something that I think is undervalued, and then oh, they went through. That that I, I'm getting paid for something that I didn't really know how it was going to work. Yeah, I think it, yeah, if you're willing to hold the the underlying for the long term, so you you know you debt um you know there's chances you get competing bidders and and more people come in as well. So it's it it's the it's probably the going long that and also shorting the acquirer. And taking on significant leverage to make a um, a five percent return into a fifty percent return that's going to hurt most individual investors. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not averse to it if I again if I spot something that I think is underpriced, but um, it's definitely on the riskier end. <laughs> I had uh, I had Michael Moberson on the show, and he said um, it's one of those you know it's it's sort of this received wisdom i guess there was data in it too that uh that mergers don't work they're basically value destroying for the most part and he said over the last decade that's not actually been true mergers have um have tended to outperform which is just goes to show you how hard how hard this game can be one of the parts <laughs> one of the parts that you uh the next section that you talk about know yourself i kind of love this so you talk about um the different personality types so can we let, let's talk about that what are the different personality types yeah, so um, I, um, when I was, I was writing this, my one of my key theses is um, no no strategy works, you know, consistently over short periods of time. Um, you know, everybody at some point will face drawdowns. Everybody will have a strategy that just doesn't work, um, and uh, and the reason is markets are adaptive so if you had something that worked all the time 
everybody it gets realizes it away. and it doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, it gets halved away. So it suddenly it doesn't work. So it's um, anything that works for the long term works because it's painful in some way. Um, it, it, and that pain is it doesn't work for extended periods of time. And the 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 more you're able to stick with your um, uh, your strategy through these weak times the better long-term returns you'll have. Um, the, you know, I, I'm sure there's out, people out there who can sort of read the market. They can, um, you know, can sort of jump ahead of the trend and, and do that. Um, but you look at the data and most people have very poor market timing instincts. You know, they capitulate at the bottom of the market and they, you know, go all in and leverage the top of the market or the top of the market for their particular strategy. Um, so, you know, I think most people are better choosing a strategy that, um, that they can stick with over the long term, and that's going to be a lot easier if it fits their unique personality. Um, sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say one of the, um, I, I did quite a lot of, you know, kind of reading around trying to look at, um, what academic research was into this personality style and, and there wasn't. There wasn't a lot that I personally found particularly useful, um, the, it, and particularly because it tended to use categories of invest types of investors I've I've never heard of or never heard anybody else use, um, you know. And most people, you know, if you ask them what type of investor they are, they say I'm a a trend or a momentum investor. I'm a quality investor. I'm a growth investor. I'm a value investor. Right. And and the reason is they're the styles that have worked, um, you know, over long periods of time. Um, so what I wanted to do is sort of um, look at um, using the sort of big, big personality. I think there's five different um, uh, measures of personality. Uh, let me get this right. Agreeableness, um, openness, conscientiousness. Um, oh man, I can't remember the other two, but, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the, the one I think stands out most for investors is agreeableness or disagree or it's opposite, which is disagreeableness. Um, and it's essentially how, how willing are you to go with the flow of what everybody else is doing? Um, you know, are you the sort of person that, um, if, if, every, if nobody else is laughing in the cinema, you don't find the film funny or you're the sort of person who is roaring in laughter and everybody else is looking at you going, what on earth is this guy, is this guy on? Um, well, that's where they uh, play the laugh track, right? Cause I guess most people like to hear other people laughing. That's your cue. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah, it's right. You know, people know that most people, um, prefer to go with the flow. Um, and, uh, as an investor, um, you know, if, if you're somebody who goes with the flow, you're probably much better off being a momentum investor right? Um, and just sort of picking that trend and following that trend. Um, if, if you're re- and that's agreeable, those are the people are agreeable. Um, but if you're an agreeable person trying to be a, a deep value investor, um, it, it's sort of great with you every day. It'll be, um, uh, difficult for you to 
um, you know, to, to go against this flow and you see the market going this way and you're going the other way. Um, I think um, the with Warren Buffett, everybody says, OK, he transitioned from being a, um, a, a kind of Graham value investor to being a, um, a, a well, now the Warren Buffett quality investor that he is now because he reached the limits of his you know what he could deploy capital into he met charlie munger he you know he had this kind of epiphany and when you read like biographies like the snowball you see that actually buffett he isn't a very disagreeable person interesting he wants to be liked he wants to be popular um you know he he really struggles with the i go into this town everybody hates me and i'm closing down their factory or sacking half their journalists it's um it it, it just doesn't really fit certainly my assessment of his personality from reading um those sort of books um so it 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 does seem a very natural transition for him you can imagine that being the quality investor the never the never sell the working with the management the um thinking long term um building a team that kind of that kind of agreeableness you know, fits much better with his current strategy than it ever did with the the Graham um, liquidate the business strategy. That's interesting. That's a good insight. I've never heard of that before or thought about that, but there, there's something in that. Um, this is a, a, a digression, but I saw when I was a when I was a university student, I went and watched uh, American Psycho in the cinema. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I only went and watched it because the book had been banned in the state when I was growing up, and it. It had been published, oh, right. and then the movie came out ridiculous. But I, I, I thought that the reason it was banned was because it was such a violent uh, serial killer kind of. That's what I thought it was about. I didn't know it was a dark comedy, and I went into the cinema. There, it wasn't very popular, and it was in the middle of the day, and there were maybe half a dozen other people in there. And half, like halfway through the first sort of scene, I realised that it was actually a comedy and started laughing really hard, which scared everybody else in the <laughs> cinema because. Oh, here's a guy laughing at a serial killer type movie. Anyway, I digress. Uh, one of the uh, it's probably it's probably a sign you're disagreeable. It's probably why I'm a deep value investor. Why deep value investor? I think I'm quite an agreeable deep value investor, though. Maybe I got to transition at some stage too. I can't do it. Uh, one of the one of the interesting parts in the know yourself. So there there are two parts that I really like. You discuss grit, and then let's let's discuss grit. So what is grit, and why is it important? Um, so this is a, um, a, a, a a sort of term that um, psychologists have come up with um, to describe, um, I, I guess, pe- people who are willing to stick with things despite adversity. Um, and the, um, the classic sort of, um, or, or the, the class definition sort of has two, two aspects. The one is, um, like um, persistence you know the ability to kind of maintain it and the other one is is interest so it's um uh, and they claim certainly that it's a better predictor of success than uh conscientiousness so that's the other one of the big five personality um types um that relates to usually conscientious people are usually highly successful people because they care about the details they work hard they um 
uh, are willing to put the hours in. Um, they care about things. You know, they care about success of things. Um, but yeah, you know, the claim is that grit is actually more predictive of success than um, conscientiousness um, because it tends to be um, domain specific as well. You can be gritty in one area and not gritty in another area because there's this enjoyment aspect to it. You know, so I always sort of um, uh, I guess my advice in the book is uh, if you're an investor, yeah, find a person, find a, a strategy that fits your personality but also find what you enjoy about investing. So if, if you enjoy going and meeting managements and um, gaining insight into businesses, um, you're much more likely to um, persist and have grit during, you know, during those periods of, um, uh, of underperformance. Whereas if your strategy relies on, you know, meeting managements and you, and you really don't like it, you know, you, you're not likely to have that that level of persistence. So it's the sort of two combined that make um, sort of grit so powerful. It's the the persistence aspect, but also the enjoyment of the process um, that keeps people going. There's a there's a great Paul Graham essay where he talks about what he looks for in founders is this bus ticket collector. Uh, have you have you heard this before? No, no, I don't think so. Go for it. Basically, the idea so bus ticket collector maybe something like the UK version might be a train spotter. It's someone who just right. does something yeah. that ostensibly from the outside, it looks really boring and nobody would do it, but these guys just do it because they really love it. And then if you can find some way to turn your your little obsession that you would do anyway for free into a way to get paid enormous amounts of money, then it, it it's complete joy for you every moment that you're doing it. And it's easy for you to persist through times when it doesn't look like you're going to get paid or there's no chance of getting paid. I often think it's like, Joe Rogan with his podcast, he could easily be like a, a guy running a little radio, you know, like a shortwave CB radio station out in Malibu or something like that, that has an audience of like a hundred people. But it just turns out that when you put your little CB radio show on the internet and call it a podcast, you wind up with millions and millions of followers. Again, a yeah. little bit off track, but mm. the same idea. Yeah. One of the things I think that... it's... Um, no, sorry. sorry, go, keep going. I was going to say, it's, uh, it's a little bit like um, Ian Castle's um, Intelligent Fanatics. Right. It's like, you know, you want the intelligence, but you like the you fanaticism the as well, yeah. um, you know, can have real value for businesses and real value for investors if you can find them. Yeah. I love the uh, the, the other part where you go through each pers- personality type or investment type, and then you say these are the common mistakes that each one makes. So. I'd like to go through that. Let's let's start with value investors. What are the common mistakes that value guys do or that personality type makes? Um, so I think with value investors, they tend to be, because they tend to be disagreeable, it can quickly go into stubbornness. Um, so um, there tends to be, you need an overwhelming amount of evidence to say that you're wrong, um, which means that value investors tend to um, average down too much. Right. Um, so I, I am an average down investor. You know, I I don't see the moment that I buy something, the you know that the world should suddenly love it and it should start going up again. Um, you know, it's likely to keep going down um, because I'm buying something that's already hated. So it's likely to get as likely to get more hated than it is to turn around. Um, but um, yeah, so value investors can be a little bit 
slow to realize oh no actually something has changed and to switch and say right i you know i kind of i'm going to sell here so things like um at cost position limits so the idea that you right. you limit not just how much of your portfolio you put into a stock but how much you'll put in at cost um it is kind of very important for value investors so just to expand on that that means that if you've got say you've got a five percent position at inception and then it halves and then you put you you re-up to five percent before you do that at the start of that process you should say i'm prepared to lose no more than whatever it is seven percent ten percent whatever it is in this particular position so yeah you can't just keep on doubling up as Mm. it goes down yes yeah because you can quickly lose you know you can have a 10 percent portfolio limit and quickly lose you know 10 20 30 percent of your um, portfolio on that one stock because you keep you keep just putting more and more into it. Right. Um, John Hempton has a great discussion. John Hempton, the Aussie sort of hedge fund, he's best known for shorts, but he's long short. He has a great discussion on his blog about just that exact, you know, there's this tension between um, the Paul Tudor Jones losers, average losers, and the value investors who, you know, really good value investors have made a lot of money. If they're right about the value and it goes down, the opportunity does get better. But you have yeah. to have some risk limits because the first uh, supposition or proposition there is that you've got to be right about the value and these things can go down and sideways for a lot longer than you can. Yeah, I think he he talks about maybe Bill Miller in that and I, I talk about that in my book as well as um, obviously a kind of value investor who beat the S&P after costs for 15 years in a row. Right. You know, when they do studies on is, you know, is success chance or is it, um, not you know it always used to be Bill Miller that they picked out as the you know the proof that there was skill um, until in 2000 sort of uh, okay well wherever it was in the financial crisis basically um, he lost investors all his cumulative return <sighs> over those 15 years um, and he did it because he kept averaging down on things like Kodak, Washington right? Mutual yeah just um, uh, no I don't yeah, I can't remember where there's that, but it was it was a lot of the it was all the stuff that was bailed out in the financial crisis, and you kind of think, um, yeah, I, I, essentially he he was bailed out, and I think he's had a bit of a um, a resurgence in the last few years because obviously he he is a guy who knows his stuff, but that that process of averaging down on the same leveraged um, right. sort of stocks, and I think this is what Hempton says as well is is don't average down if it's leveraged. Or if there's obsolescence risk, like Kodak, I've uh, I've even lost money in Washington in the in the Washington Mutual stub that had a whole lot of net operating losses. I managed to lose money. I didn't lose it in I didn't lose it beforehand, but I lost it in the in the stub. So it, it got everybody that thing. Jeez. Uh, what about momentum investors? Where do they where do they make mistakes? Um, so I, I think uh, the the momentum investor um, the probably um again position size can come to haunt them because the stuff that's doing well becomes um the their biggest positions um and you have this tendency to kind of to start to like the things that make you money um so um you know they can get caught by you know if you're a pure momentum investor if the momentum fades you should be selling but um, you know, you know, you see a lot of momentum investors. They they like the product of the 
right. um the thing so I've, I've seen people um do you get fever tree in the u.s do you know what that is no oh well i, I um, don't it, we may have we may have it in the u.s it's it, it's a premium premium tonic water oh yes yeah, sorry we do my mixer. wife drinks it <laughs> she's gonna kill me <laughs> <laughs> um and uh uh, and it and it did really well because it it sort of um, got ahead of this premiumization process uh, or trend, um, you know. So no longer pe- people didn't want the Schweppes or the whatever the you know the, the brand is in the US. Um, they um, they started to ask for Fever Tree. Pubs started to stock it. It became the you know the, the, this kind of trend, um, and it did really really well. Um, um, but people also were like, uh, became, well, I'm also a fever tree drinker of the tonic water. I, I prefer fever tree, you know, so they're making all this money on the stock and it's going up. Right. Um, but they're also going, yeah. And I go and buy fever tree and I tweet pictures of me drinking fever tree and, um, you know, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure there's, there's good investors out there who got out, but they're, the the reality is that, that men- momentum doesn't last forever and it's very hard if you've um identified as i am the fever tree investor and drinker of the products and i met the management maybe and right. you know uh, you kind of bought into the whole environment it's very hard to then sell whereas the day the momentum turns if you're a momentum investor you should be out and you should be moving on to the next thing that does have positive momentum is that true for that's true for growth investors as well is that the common mistake that growth investors make yeah i i i struggle to it's harder to define a specific personality trait for for um growth investors um the the thing that i found probably most instructive was um henrik kronkvist i think is a, a swedish academic did um some research on twins so he looked at how likely are identical and non-identical twins um you know or what factors did it cause people to prefer growth investing to value investing um and there was definitely a genetic aspect so if identical twins were more likely to be the same type of investor than non-identical twins so interestingly your your genetics plays a part (laughs) um but the other one was um uh people who have higher disposable income, uh, greater social, um, you know, capital side, you know, um, have better jobs or, you know, uh, uh, better careers outside of investing and more likely to be growth investors. And people who have lived in times of economic boom are more likely to be growth investors. Um, and the common factor I could come up with was they all gen- they all create optimism. Right, quite optimistic, so, yeah it gives you the optimistic thing and um in the book i talk about the issues with being overly optimistic um and they tend to be that you fall for frauds fads and failures right um so i think that's probably the biggest mistake that growth investors make is they they're just too optimistic about um the future and they particularly have this thing of they all gloss over flat you know red flags that say well this isn't particularly strongly um, finance company or this management have committed frauds before or a number of other you know uh, or they buy into fads which quickly reverse it's very difficult because the you know ian castle who we're talking about before he's got he's done some analyses on 
and this is quite common, looking at how, you know, to hold those multi-bagger compounders over years and years and years, you do have to endure many of these gigantic drawdowns. Amazon famously has a 90% drawdown early on. So almost, I'm sure almost nobody has held it from IPO to date because of things like that. But equally, you sort of have to have that ability to recognize when it's maybe got too far ahead of its skis. I honestly don't know what the balancing act, how to, how to do that balancing act. That's why I don't do that. I, I'm a deep, that's why I'm a deep value guy because it makes sense to me and that I frankly just cannot figure out how they do it. But I think that's a, it's a nice segue into the weaknesses part of the book where you're discussing the behavioral biases. So let's just start with, um, let's start with overconfidence and, and what, what is that and how, how do we overcome it? So, so most of us, are overconfident we believe um that we are better at things than we actually are you know um if you've got a room for all the people and ask them hands up if you're a better than average driver in this room 80 percent of the hands would go up i think is (laughs) on average um and it's sort of natural to um to, to to think that that um to, to be confident in what you do, particularly if you're um, experienced and you have, um, you know, kind of specific knowledge and experience. The, you know, one of the classic studies is, I think, um, a psychologist got, um, and this is like in the 1950s, so it's been known for a long time, is um, asked people to do, per, uh, asked other psychologists to, to do personality assessments on patients and he gave them you know he started off with a bare minimum of information in their file and then added more and more information um and the more information didn't add any any real uh, you know extra ability for them to assess personality it's it's very complex to 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 judge somebody's um you know um uh personality or neurosis or, or whatever from the the information um so i think it started off at 26%, around 26%. Um, and they thought they'd got about maybe 30% right. Um, at the end of the process, when they'd been given all the information, their personality assessments had not improved in the accuracy at all, but they thought they were 50%, um, uh, <laughs> like, you know, 50% confident in what they'd done. So all the extra information had done and I think this is a real problem for investors because we tend to um, think, okay, the more research I do, um, the the higher conviction I can have in that position. You know, the more times I've met the management, the you know the sort of I can go to twenty or thirty percent rather than my normal ten percent. Um, and you add all this information, and and in reality, your judgment about the stock has not got any better. You've just become more and more confident in your own assessment and then you know something that was completely left field imagine um you know take bp and the macondo well disaster right how many people foresaw that a single well blowout was going to cost them 62 billion dollars um in fines and compensation is that what it came to finally yeah that was the final figure i had no idea it got as high as that wow um, you know, any if it wasn't a, a super major, it would have it would have put the company under. Basically, any other company would have, apart from Exxon or Shell, probably would have would have gone under for that 
That's amazing. That level of damage. I was investing through that period, and I remember that it sold off very sharply. And Whitney Tilson went on television and said it's overdone. That they won't be, they won't be as big as this. And I thought that's probably right. Like everybody does overestimate the uh, the scale of the crisis in the moment. But I had yeah. no idea that the final bill was sixty two billion. That maybe everybody mm. panicked appropriately. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Except I guess the company. It survived. The company did all right and survived and, you know, kind of made the returns back. So even though it cost that much money, it, it, you know, you look at the long-term chart and it hasn't hasn't really, you know, caused the damage you expect. But that that is $62 billion that's gone out of shareholders' pockets and we just, been returned as dividends it, or something. In quantitative value, we discussed two, uh, two studies that are similar to the one that you discussed there. One is on horse race predictions. And another one is on college football. So they asked some college students about right, yeah. college football, whether they, if they mm. knew anything about it all, and they said that they did. And then they had, say, 100 pieces of information, and they randomized those pieces of information, and they gave them 10 blocks of 10 bits of information about the games. And so you got the first bit, and you made your prediction on who was going to win. And then you got the second bit, and then you made a new prediction. But the person sitting to the left and right of you might get different information, even though by the end, you all had the same information. And people mm. made different predictions. And I think that the, the conclusion was that we anchor too much on the first bit of information that we get. So yeah. Your, yeah. your decision was sort of made mm. on the first block. And then everything after yeah. that was just you collecting mm. for your I am right file to show that yes. you know, the decision yeah. was correct. Mm. I think that the... the uh, yeah, so we don't update our priors enough and you talk a little bit about bayesian probability in the in the book i don't know if it's in this context but that just just get, that was a, that was the question i was going to ask you about the value investors is that a good approach for value investors do you think to sort of take some sort of bayesian approach where if your instinct is to get stuck into something and to dollar cost average down into it in the case where you're wrong you're finding this new information you should be you got some probability. Here's your new bit of information. Now you update it with your pride. Have some process. So if you get enough of these, eventually you've got some statistical um, reason for selling out of something. Yeah, I, I think the um, it's good if you can actually quantify those things. I think the um, uh, you know if you can do that, that's great. But I think the for the vast majority of investors, that's that's probably too complex. Um, a process to apply, uh, or it's certainly to actually apply the formula. I right. think with the the the, the, Bay, the Bayesian um, approach is there's there's two factors that um, you really need to be aware of. The first is um, base rates matter. Right. You know, so, so if you are going to invest in um, I, IPOs, then knowing that. Um, you know, the, the average IPO underperforms in the following, you know, 12 months it is an important base rate. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if you bought two successful IPOs and they did really well, your tendency is to forget the base rate that, well, actually, um, most management's IPO at the top you know right they're the most knowledgeable people and they're the most willing sellers so therefore um and there is um there is exceptions to that i think you know you, you get ipos where management don't take any money out and it's all all the money goes back into the company to grow but but the average you know particularly private equity sellers right. and things like that they're that uh, you know 
they're, they're the knowledgeable investor and you're the patsy usually in those situations. But they do a big recapitalization and pay themselves a big fat dividend, load the company up with debt and then IPO it. That's, that's yeah. the one you've got to be careful yeah, of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then it goes bust five years later and they right. buy it off buy the it administrator back. and then clever, it comes right. back into the market <laughs> a few years later. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's a great um, trick. Uh, and then false positives are the other one is the, um, the, the idea that um, if you have um, uh, an idea of what the, um, you know, not just you have some signal that says this is a good buy, it doesn't just matter, you know, how often that signals that it's a good buy and it is a good buy. It also matters that the times it signals and it isn't a right. good buy. Right. Um, and having an idea of the, you know, sort of false positive rate as well as the base rates gives you the, I mean, it's, it's very important in medicine and diagnostic tests, you know, the having a high po false positive rate, um, you know, for something like coronavirus really isn't a, a good test because if you test thousands and thousands of people, you're going to get a lot of false positives and those will dwarf the real cases of coronavirus. And now you've right. got um, thousands and thousands of people in isolation or in hospital who don't have the coronavirus and taking up um, uh, beds for people who are genuinely sick. Um, so, it, yeah, it, in medicine, false positives are a, a real challenge, um, particularly when you get big screening of lots of people. Uh, what's loss aversion? So, so loss aversion is um, a, a case where we we just don't like to take losses, um, and you see this in um, in people's portfolios usually by a long tail of small positions that people just aren't willing to sell. Right. Um, the um, a, and and every everybody is loss averse. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's anybody out there. Um, who is truly sort of calibrated to not mind taking a loss. Um, and the strategies that, that people kind of use to deal with this. In the book, I suggest that everybody should have a lower portfolio limit. So everybody should just say, if this drops below, say, 1% of my portfolio, I'm just going to sell. Um, and I've applied this to my own portfolio. And it's, it's really hard. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> um you know other people have stop losses so you know they they say well okay if something drops 20 percent i i sell out and that's a kind of stop loss so um i don't think that usually works very well for value investors it's statistically um, not not well supported on an individual stock name and particularly yeah. i don't think it works for value investors too i agree um uh, so, so for me, so, so some people, this is never an issue because they're, they buy something, it goes down 20%, they, you know, they sell, it's gone. But for me as a, a sort of value investor, um, I, I either average down or, um, or, or in an ideal world, I either sell, I should be selling or averaging down. But what you find is you get these positions that you go, oh, I, I'm not confident enough really to put any fresh capital in, right. but, uh, but oh, I, but I also don't want to sell it, and it's a classic sign of the you know I'm loss averse. I don't want to take a definite loss, um, and we tend to sort of roll the dice. We like to kind of um, say rather than taking a definite loss, I'll roll the dice and hope something works out. But of course, if something's 
0.2, 0.3% of my portfolio, it could double. Yeah, it's irrelevant. It, it's it's daily noise. So so why am I still holding this? Why am I spending my time and my energy um, to actually do this? And it, you know, I either say right, I've got to, you know, this really is my best idea, and I'm going to buy more, or this is a, a you know, this is loss aversion. I'm just going to sell and cut it out. Do you know that's funny? I'd never heard that idea before of a lower position limit. But about two weeks ago, Jake Taylor on on our other podcast that I do with those two guys, he mentioned the same idea. I think it's a really good idea. I, I, yeah, I don't know if there's any statistical I, support for it, but it's a good one. Good behaviorally. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I think I know where Jake got that idea from. Where did he get it? Did it come from Me. the book? <laughs> yeah. Ah, there you yeah, go. My book. Congrats. Because um, I, I went on his podcast and it's one of the things ah, we Ah, there we go. That's great. <laughs> That's what you got to be careful, man, because ideas come back at you from lots of different angles, even though there's only one source. <laughs> it, I was just like, right. I've heard I that can... idea twice. It must be a good one. <laughs> so I, I can now quote that I've heard it on your podcast and Jake's <laughs> podcast. So therefore, there's it's some evidence there. for it. <laughs> uh, optimism bias. What's that? Um, so I think this is a more general case of uh, sort of overconfidence. So overconfidence is. Um, I am too optimistic about my own abilities and the things that I can control. Whereas optimism bias is um, we just tend to be overly optimistic about everything. Um, we think that um, a the product of a company will um, be bigger than it is. We'll underestimate the amount of time it will take to develop and the amount of money it will take to market. You know, we're just um, and it's for good reason you know, if you're an optimist, you're typically more successful, more attractive, more, you know, like there's lots of sort of biological. And, it's pushed um, humanity forward for thousands, yes. hundreds of thousands yeah, yeah, of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the guys who weren't willing to leave their, their cave They're because they were uh, scared. <laughs> um, you know, so I think the only people who, um, yeah, aren't overconfident are the clinically depressed. Right. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't want to tra- you don't want to kind of trade that off. They're accurately um, assessing the risks. <laughs> yes. We should listen um, to them more. Yeah, yeah. Um the uh, yeah, so if you want a um pro- probably if you want a risk manager, get a clinically depressed risk manager to uh... <laughs> Yeah, you got to be careful of the flamboyant <laughs> risk managers. Yeah. I had um, I had a thought when you were talking before about uh, the overconfidence bias did you? I don't know if you have any discussion of Dunning Kruger in the book, but you know the the Dunning Kruger. Well, you, do you yeah, have a discussion? Yeah, yeah. What, what's what's Dunning Kruger? Um, Let's talk about I, Dunning Kruger. I, brief, I briefly mention it, I think, because um, um, uh, so, so for those who don't know, Dunning Kruger is um, th- this idea that the skills required to assess competency are the same as the skills of competency themselves. Right. So. So the truly incompetent are doubly cursed because they are both in, truly incompetent and unable to see their own incompetence. incompetence right. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's why you get, you know, uh, kind of uh, the, the, the guy in the office who everybody thinks is terrible, but he thinks he's the best, you know, the, the best performer, the highest guy that everybody loves him. <laughs> Um, so uh, it it can be sort of quite annoying, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of work context. But as a a sort of portfolio context, it it really is that that thing. And I I think I talk about it in relation to some of the um, 
some of these behavioral biases um yeah my theory is that it, you're much better off making rules in for your portfolio like a maximum portfolio limit a, a minimum portfolio limit than you are leaving it to your discretion yeah um and the reason is daniel kahneman who won the nobel prize for for all of his research in this area they asked him um you know has it improved your decision making and he said no no it's just made me better at spotting right. the mistakes in other people <laughs> right it's funny isn't it? um, i think that that yeah, dunning kruger so- also impacts you know there's that when you when you learn a new skill initially you think well this is quite easy and then a little bit later you think no this is in, insurmountably hard and i'm terrible at it and there's no hope and then you gradually yeah, get yeah. Be- so it's yeah. you're just overcoming that part mm. where you you don't know how bad you are then you yes. do know how bad you are yeah, yeah, and then you start getting mm. better yeah i i think that probably mirrors a lot of people's in sort of you know investing journeys because um yeah i've i've got a, a sort of mathematical background so when i first started investing you know i could do the discount cash flows i could do the you know that kind of stuff but um you know so, so i do discount cash flows for things and then of course something from left field that i hadn't seen at all would completely wipe out you know the company and the you know you, you look back at the the sort of files you created these complex models and you just like you know what was what was i what was i thinking you know i just i just i i missed the you know the wood for the trees right. um and it, it, i think it's that sort of effect that you know you, you go through this investing of oh hey i can do it i can read um ben graham and uh analyze a balance sheet or do a discount cash flow and then you go through the process of oh no it's not enough to um to only know you know uh, to be good i have to be better than everybody else i need an edge um and then you go through the process of um you know making all these mistakes and and trying to um ch- trying to overcome those by you know by trying harder and 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 as i found it it just doesn't work you know you need the rule you need the right um the, yeah, the I, I couldn't agree more I agree mm. with all of that, and I th- I think that I'm like Daniel Kahneman. Like I I, I suffer probably more so th- to all of those all of those things than everybody else, and so it helps to have the rules there. And I was just yeah. thinking before about the loss aversion. I have I'm thinking of the particular stock in my portfolio that I'm dreading selling, but I know that I'm going to have to rebalance it out at some stage. I don't wanna, <laughs> I don't want to mention it because I don't want to give it too much more heat. Uh, there's there's. <laughs> Just, just do it. Rip the bandaid off. It's, oh yeah, no, it's it's, I, it's, a, it's out of my hands. I don't, I don't have any. I, I've already handed that over to the system, so I don't, I don't have it. I don't get to make that decision anymore. Thank God. Otherwise, oh, right. I'd still be. I'd hold it. That's my instinct is to is to hold it. Um, yeah. I like that in the in the optimism bias context, you talk about fads, frauds, and failures. So let's talk about uh, how do you how do you avoid fads? So, fads. Um, I. This might be controversial, but I, I don't think you should necessarily avoid fads. Fads can be very profitable on the way up. Um, you know, the the way to spot them, I or what they can be quite hard to spot. But I think there's a couple of clues. The first one is single product companies. Mm-hmm. So you know, so I think I use the example of Crocs in uh, the. That's what I was thinking um, of. <laughs> I, 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 and maybe They're coming come back. back yeah they come back in and it's like you think um what, they're a net net on? at one stage you could have got them as a net net <laughs> oh really yeah. yeah um so but when you've got one product um you are massively exposed to these these sort of trends um and also you're 
your advertising isn't as effective. Whereas if you take a kind of luxury goods company, you know, you advertise Burberry and, you know, they could sell shoes or they could sell um, ties, you know, it, 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 um, anything that fits that brand, um, you know, can sell well and the advertising adds value. Whereas Crocs, right. it's like you either want a pair of Crocs or you don't. And, it, you know, for a long time, people wanted them. For a long time, people don't. And people it sounds felt very like strongly about them both ways. That's right. <laughs> Did... Yeah, I, I picked that because people have a, a sort of almost, you know, uh, emotional reaction to whether Did... they like them or not. Burberry had, uh, I was, I have been to the UK a few times and I, what, the last time I was there, Burberry had a problem where um, the chavs were, the, there was like this. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. explain to everybody um, what a chav is and what the problem was. So, so uh, the the sort of um, I, I guess the kind of classic definition of a chav would be, um, yes, somebody who um, is from a relatively poor background, um, who probably who probably has has money to spend on, you know, kind very of very delicately goods. done. You diffuse that bond um, very well. <laughs> um, but they're probably but they're probably not as discerning or they don't have the background that somebody who has always purchased luxury goods has um so it tends to be i, I mean it, it tends to be an insult really it's uh, right. um uh, 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 something used for somebody who um yeah kind of wears a certain style of clothing and this is the issue Burberry had was they had a very unique kind of check pattern that defined their clothes. And then people of this um, demographic started wearing it. So then people of um, their more classic demographic stopped wearing it. Um, but I think because they weren't a single product company, they they were OK because they still sort of had the brand. They just had to lose the check right. pattern on everything. It was the check pattern that um, stood as being, um, you know, you can think maybe um, Canada, Canada Goose might be an example of a fad that um, has now maybe become too popular that now people love to hate it rather than actually right. love it. You know, it, it sort of represents people who, um are showy and have you know however much it is five hundred dollars to spend on a winter jacket that they only wear in the city sorry <laughs> i think there's seven or eight i've been i've been short right. canada goose for a few quarters now in full disclosure so i'm 100 percent in agreement <laughs> they're um yeah yeah the uh there's me uh, uh there's the, the deep value investor the, yeah. the, who's never going to spend eight hundred dollars on a no, i can't do it either i can't do it either <laughs> and i live in california so there's no need but I still yes. see them around, which just makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah, which is because people are using them as a kind of status symbol. And once people turn against that sort of status symbol, um, the fad goes, you know, quickly ends, in my opinion. I guess we'll, we'll see whether your short is successful it's, or not. It's working, but, you know, I'm always nervous about the shorts that can always blow up in your face. 
Uh, I like in the discussion on frauds, you talk about Benford's law, which is one of my favorite ways of identifying something that are a bit weird. And I think you could have applied it to the DNC primary over here. You, that that doesn't need to concern oh, really? you. But I think I looked at the I looked at the results, just eyeballing the results, and I thought that's a really weird distribution. And I bet if I applied Benford's law to that, I would find that someone had fiddled those results. But what is oh, it? Oh, really? Um, so, so yeah, so Benford's law um, is um, this chap called Benford found that. Um, any series of numbers produced by a natural process um, tend to follow a certain distribution. So the number one is the most common um, digit followed by two sort of, um, you know, going down through the, the, you know, the numerals. So if you have, um, you know, if, if you do a, a science experiment or, or you produce a set of accounts that are made up of lots of, you know, small accounting entries over the year, they sh- the numbers that are produced should follow Benford's law. So one should be the most um, uh, sort common. of most used, most common number, and um, yeah, kind of down. Um, so if you've made up a set of accounts, so this is you know not your sort of your earnings manipulation, but your your guys who've just completely made up the numbers. Um, People tend to think that certain numbers are m- more random than others. Threes like and sevens. Like a three right? and a seven. Right. It, it's like, and I know they're not, but I still have this fit feeling that. Well, it's know, because they're not. Um, they're not even numbers, so even numbers don't feel random, and they're not. Yeah. They're not the uh, the one or the ten, which are both the, yeah. the ends of the distribution. Mm. It's not five because that's the middle, so that only leaves you with yeah, threes yeah, yeah. and sevens. Yeah, and it's like if you ask somebody to, um, you know, pick pick a random number between not an hundred you know people pick 37 or 73 because they feel that's the, and they're that's prime, the most they're random number <laughs> yeah they're the most random numbers because they're prime numbers they're you know it's <laughs> um, do, you, do you think that they know that they're prime off the top of their head <laughs> um well yeah maybe they just feel maybe they just feel it but the, there's definitely that um that aspect and the other aspect that people don't like when making up accounts is they don't like to put a zero on the end mm-hmm. feels too precise mm-hmm. it feels like if you made exact numbers you are trying to show that you've made the exact numbers so therefore people are going to say well you just made up that number so they don't they underuse the zero as a trailing digit it's a sort of you know second level thinking <laughs> thing that catches people That's out as fascinating. well and in terms um, of identifying failures, how do you, what 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 do you what do you recommend there? So I, I mean, it, for me, it's pretty much balance sheet balance sheet strength. So um, the um, it all all the evidence of this stuff it, it is found on the balance sheet. So the um, the, yeah, the classic one is just to look at the the, the current ratio or the quick ratio. Um, I like the uh, uh, there's a guy called Paul Allen who's a sort of accounting professor and wrote a book called Choose Stocks Wisely. Again, a, a deep value guy, um, and his he, he sort of takes an adjusted current account ratio. So he takes all the current assets and apart from cash and says, "I'm going to take 0.8 of those." He, you know, he's sort of giving a sort of fire sell uh, or a sort of a, that's the grand a, 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 discounted net current yes. asset value type yeah, approach. Yeah. Um, except he's using it for just testing of balance sheet strength rather than, right. um, you know, his theory is you want a company that's strong enough, strong, strongly capitalized in the short term that 
um, they can survive the turn to get the turnaround and the effect right. of, um, you know, so, so I think that's a sort of classic one. You then go into the more sort of um, sort of metrics that people have produced. Um, uh, I think the uh, Altman Z is the mm-hmm. is the classic one um, that um, and they all uh, and then um, that's been updated. I think Merton the um, uh, of Black Shoals Merton fame um, used the you know kind of treated the equity as an option on the assets or something mm-hmm. like that and he came up with a um, a formula as well um and um you know kind of various people like olson and then campbell i'm gonna get this wrong hilsher and right. sven Gali or something like that um uh, it sort of i think produced the late, latest one um and they all either have a threshold you know you want the you know and the easiest thing is you get these from a data provider um you know whatever you use to screen your stocks or, or whatever you use those i think what did what did you use in quantitative value? Was it Olson? We used we used a few. What we found was that what we found was kind of interesting at a universe level, excluding the five percent that are the worst on Olson's um, Altman, and I think we might have used some earnings manipulation type measures as well. So we used to stress right, yep. earnings manipulation, yep. statistical fraud, mm-hmm. and I still do this because I do think this is a good approach. If you exclude those stocks from the universe, you get a couple of percent of better performance out of the entire universe. The funny mm. thing is that it doesn't really, if you're already a value guy and you're looking for these cash rich balance sheets and strong earnings, you don't really find yourself excluding very many companies from that list because you're already looking yeah. for yeah. those better yeah. quality things. But yeah, we, yeah. there's definitely, I, I still do it as a step just in case something slides through yeah. into there. And the other thing I always mm. look for is just a divergence between the reported earnings and the cash flow, the accrual that builds over time is a pretty good indicator yeah. that there's some yeah, yeah. some mm. shenanigans because you don't really necessarily you you rarely find earnings manipulation or fraud in in a company that's going really well because they don't need to do it so that yeah that all yeah, of yeah. that stuff turns up in distress yeah um interesting you say that though but the um the the benish like that there's certain factors that um yeah, so he splits into two. He, he looks at what type of companies are likely to be earnings manipulators, and then he looks at well, what are the signs of earning earnings manipulation? So obviously, the signs of the earnings manipulation are the you know increasing accruals, um, uh, you know, kind of some of those other sort of balance, balance sheet entries. But the the sort of things that um, that the type of companies actually tend to be the fast growing ones. Right. Um, so because, uh, and there's an interesting theory on this from a guy called Dan Davies, who wrote a book called lying, lying for money, um, you know, which is sort of about the types of frauds you get. And his theory is if you've got a fraud, you've got almost like two sets of books. You've got the real set of books and you've got the, 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 the fake set of books and both have to grow um you know so you've got sort of two two things that are compounding so anything that grows unusually rapidly right. you have to investigate um so yeah it, it, 
it can be the the distressed companies that have an incentive and obviously um going to miss banking covenants or declining gross margin and, and things like that are all um, i think declining gross margin is one of the benish tests as well it, it, you know those things are in there but interestingly rapid growth is one of the um yeah that's it that is interesting the signs that's funny that john hampton pointed this out to me a long time ago that one of the things that you look for is an unusually large asset that should that just, just shouldn't be there so Parmalite, which was the milk company that went under they had a billion right, dollars in right. cash so they said in this bank yeah and the auditor mm. sent the junior audit employee to the bank to get the letter the bank said yeah they've got the billion dollars here but the bank was in on the fraud too which just shows how hard it is yeah. to yeah to prove it um, and the, the, the reason they asked was because they were missing some debt payments on, on the other like why do you have a billion dollars over yes. here and yeah, you're not yeah. paying your debt over here yeah yeah mm. That was a, a classic in the example, one of the examples given in the book of a company, UK company called Globo, is that they claimed they had 100 million euros of cash and 50 million euros of debt. And they were trying to raise a bond, at, a, a US dominated bond at 10% yield or something right. like that. And it's like, yeah, there's something, you know, it, it was clear there was something money. going on there. Yeah. It's funny, um, as, as we're talking about this, Tesla, so... Uh, Musk has said on the last earnings call that they don't need any capital and they've just raised $2 billion, or they say they're about to raise $2 billion in capital. Well, with the price, he's stupid if he isn't. If well, that's right. Opinion, that's right. It's like, why, you know, it's like, if you're going to, well, yeah, I'm going to be careful what I say here, but if you're going to keep the game going, then, you know, it's, it, you know, you need capital and, you know, you've got it's, to raise it when they're They're also there. potentially perfectly innocent excuses to you like when the stock price is high i'm going to raise capital that's if i yeah. was if i was running that business that's what i'd be doing when the stock price is yeah. high, i'm going to buy back stock yeah. um we're coming right up on time but i just want to discuss you've got just really quickly optimal portfolios creating and maintaining i know that's a big chunk of the book but just give us a flavor <laughs> of what's in there um yeah so i mean there's there's obviously the um how you weight stocks in your portfolio is one of the big um you know the big questions that most advanced investors face um and i'm i'm going to be slightly controversial here because i know i think you equal weight is that right right i do for uh for um, for ease but yeah equal um, but go <laughs> so, so so i'm uh, uh I, so i have an issue with um sort of equal weight um investing is i think it's fine if you hold 100 200 stocks you know you're a bit more of a a quant investor with a little bit of um you know additional checks and things like that um because you're not really saying you know or if you buy 50 stocks um with dis discount tangible book you know it, you can't really say that this company on point three is better than this company on point four right. um you know so, so i sort of in those situations i get that probably equal weighting is um is better but people who have sort of 20 30 40 stock portfolios when you're equal weighting you're you're so sure about what is in that portfolio you've looked at the universe of stocks and you've said um this you know th these 20 are in and um uh, you know and these however many thousand are out but I have no idea which of these 20 is, is any better or worse than the others. So, that, so, so that's you, the sort of... you advocate for Kelly in that, in that kind of yes, scenario so, um, or some, so or some think, loose Kelly? 
yeah, if you can um, apply some kind of additional weighting, you will do better. You know, if you can say, okay, this is a better idea. And, and the other one is that people often forget, um, and they, the, the idea of Kelly is that you weight in proportion to your edge divided by your odds. Um, and you, the, the more upside you have, the, the higher position you hold. And I think a lot of investors naturally sort of think that way. What they often forget is the higher risk this stock is, the less you should hold. Right. So I I favour using the two functions together, and 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 I don't think, unless you're a sort of quantitative hedge fund, you probably shouldn't be using the actual formula to to guide your position. Kelly's the outer um, limit of how much you should put into a position. Yes. And anything under that yeah, yeah, fractional yeah. Kelly is perfectly um, fine. And knowing that you're overconfident as well means that you're much more likely to overbet, which right. you know gives you significant risk of wipeout with Kelly. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so what I advocate is people, um, yeah, put, put them, you know, have large positions, which are in stocks that are, they consider low risk and high reward or high upside. Um, and then they, um, and these are the sort of, you know, the Dando investors, this is, um, uh, Monish Pabrai's kind of, um, idea that you, you know, you, you pick the high, uh, the high reward, low risk stocks, um, where I differ from Pabra is, and he he spends a lot of time in cash, if I remember correctly, because he can't find these sort of stocks. Whereas I advocate, yes, you can own a, a company that's high risk and high reward, but you only have a small amount of your portfolio right. um, in that position. Um, and that's what Kelly says. It's Kelly also true to Kelly, say, yeah. Yeah, Kelly doesn't say don't invest in these things. And I know... Um, Kind of Pavra uses Kelly in that, but he sort of sticks at the, and then he equal weights um, within his portfolio, which again sort of says, it, it, you know, he's so certain that these ten stocks are in, and so uncertain that anything that drops off is is not in. Um, I, I think this is for most investors, this would be a way that adds value, um, is easy to implement. And should increase, you know, your risk-adjusted returns if you have the ability to assess risk and potential return. I think I think it's a pretty well accepted uh, marker that an investor has skill that their own portfolio outperforms the equal weight version of the portfolio. So Carl Icahn famously has a portfolio that outperforms the equal weight version of his own portfolio. The, right. Just the the counter argument because I feel like I should defend myself a little bit. Yeah, go for it. Go for if it. your universe is 1,500 stocks and you're holding 30 long, you're already down to like point, you're down to like 0.2% of the universe. And so then at that level, and this is Joel Greenblatt saying it, he just says it's, it's very hard to distinguish sometimes between those stocks. You may have some false precision in there. And there's a great rejoinder. So uh, Ed Thorpe's son went to a value investing congress in Pasadena and heard uh, Pabri giving a talk and said everybody at this conferences now of a value investor and they're all using Kelly. And so Ed Thorpe wrote this um, mathematical proof showing why you shouldn't use Kelly or why you should why you should be... Sorry, I take that back. He's, he's not saying don't use Kelly. He's saying 
basically size down your positions if you're using Kelly. And he says it doesn't account for black swans. And the other thing that Kelly does, you know, it's used in series when you're playing blackjack rather than in parallel where you have all the positions in. So you could potentially have a position that should be 51% of your portfolio. And if you have two positions at the same time, that would be 51% and both go to zero, that would violate Kelly's um, never risk ruin sort of dictum. So he right, says... Yeah. Find you know if you if you were being honest about the construction of that portfolio, you'd find every positive expectation bet in the the universe, which might include gilts, might include, include treasuries, and then if you look at them all and you size them all down appropriately so that nothing in the portfolio risks ruin, then that that would be that that should be the sizing that you should adopt in your own portfolio. Mm. And so I think if you do that, it still falls out. I found, you know, if you do, it's computationally difficult to do, but you can go through this sort of process and you can see that the position sizes tend to be a lot smaller than everybody expects and it falls out around, like, for even for a pretty high conviction position, around 3 or 4%, which is how I run my portfolio. Anyway, that's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that um, my caution there is I'm combining this with... Um, portfolio limits that reflect that people are overconfident um so you know it uh, and those black swan things so uh, again even my um the things i think are very low risk and very high reward you know in my own portfolio i'm limiting to maybe say 10 percent. you know i'm not i'm not going you know and and i think that's, that's not buffett the, style at 40 percent of no, the portfolio no. <laughs> and, and i think you know I think I give the example of uh, in the book that I think even Buffett was overconfident. Yeah. I think with the the Dempster Mill where he had sort of maybe thirty percent of his portfolio, he later said, um, you know, hiring Harry Bottle, the the manager that turned it round, you know that that's that changed the course of his life. You know, it, uh, and I kind of I don't really want to be in a position where so anyone you... stock or one anyone. <laughs> Um, you know, investment decision changes the course of my life <laughs> potentially a, for the worst, at least for the worst. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a great uh, that's a great sentiment to end on, uh, Mark. If folks are looking for a way to get in contact with you, how do they do that? Yeah, so I'm on on Twitter at Danger Capital, or people can email me Mark at excellentinvesting.org. And the name of the book is Excellent Investing: How to Build a Winning Portfolio. That's the the book that Mark very kindly sent through to me and I enjoyed it a great deal. Thoroughly recommend it. Uh, Mark Simpson, thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>